Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Ruiel as he continues his sermon series in Colossians. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, just two weeks ago, we started a, a brand new sermon series through the book of Colossians, and what we've been saying is that the message of Colossians is very, very simple, yet profound in its simplicity. And that message is that Christ is enough. Christ is enough for our salvation. He's enough for all wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. He is enough to help us live a life that is pleasing to the Father simply by trusting in Him, knowing Him, loving Him, and worshiping Him on a day-to-day basis, uh, minute-by-minute, step-by-step. Colossians is a book that over and over again, it it pulls us back, right? So just like a a guide pulls a hiker back on the trail, just like a coach pulls an athlete back off the bench and kicks him into the game, Colossians pulls us back to Christ. And so whenever we find ourselves leaning on our own wisdom, Colossians will tell us to focus on Christ. When we find ourselves looking for knowledge outside of Scripture, outside of God, Colossians tells us, look to Christ. Look no further for what you need for godliness than Jesus Christ. It continues to pull us back. And in order to communicate the message of Colossians, I've I've designated it into two distinct sections. And we're talking about the identity in Christ as it's fleshed out in this book. The first part of Colossians talks about identity truth. Who are we because of the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done for us? The second part of this book is going to talk about identity transformation. How do we now live based on our identity in Christ? But it poses a a problem for us when you think about this, because identity itself, as a word, identify, identification, you're not going to read that word anywhere in the four chapters of Colossians. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any usage of identity throughout the Apostle Paul's writing, all 13 letters of the New Testament that he penned, maybe one time he uses the word identification. And so so the question for us this morning is, what does identification have to do with the message of Colossians that Jesus is enough for us? And in order to answer that question, I want to give a metaphor as we begin. Most of you have been to a marriage ceremony, wedding ceremony, And at some point in time in that ceremony, usually it's at the beginning, you're going to hear something from the officiator, from the pastor, it goes something like this. Who gives away this woman to be married to this man? That's a really important question, because up until that point, traditionally and presumably, it's the father of the bride walks her down the aisle, and it's the father who has given away his life on behalf of his daughter, the bride. He is the one that has given away resources, time, effort, uh, discipleship, just doing whatever he can to raise this daughter in a godly way. And now in the marriage ceremony, there's a transaction that takes place. Now the authority, the giving away becomes the husband's responsibility. Now it's the husband who will give himself away for the betterment out of love for the bride. And all that is taking place with that one tiny question that really at the heart of marriage is giving yourself away for the sake of your spouse. 
We also know biblically that marriage is a dominant metaphor that described the relationship between God and his people. In the Old Testament, Israel was the wandering bride from the father. The, the father was the faithful one that kept calling her back and calling her back over and over again. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ, and Christ is the husband. And everything, all of redemptive history is building up to Revelation 21, 22, even back into chapter 19, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is a, a very all-encompassing metaphor of God's relationship with his people throughout all of redemptive history. And what we come to understand is there's something special about that relationship, or about family relationships, that's different from any other type of relationship that you'll have. At work, you have relationships with your coworkers, with business partners. In your community, you have relationships with your neighbors. If you're on a team, you have relationships with your teammates. All of those relationships are different from the relationship of marriage because in all of those relationships, those relationships themselves are a means to an end. If you have a relationship with your coworkers and trying to make a profit, they're a means to help you make profit for that business. If you have a relationship with your teammates, your teammates are a means to the end of, of winning, right? We're not playing for participation trophies around here. We want to win. And so those, re those relationships are designed to help you win, put people's strengths and weaknesses in certain spots. And in your community, your relationships with your neighbors are designed so that you can have confidence knowing that you are living in a safe environment. You can raise your kids and do these things together um, in a safe environment. However, the family relationship is different than that. Family relationships are not a means to an end. Family relationships are not, I'm going to do this so that you can do that. Family relationships are, there's an intrinsic character to those relationships that are altogether different. They're an end in themselves. You might think of in a job, listen, I'm not going to do that because of the personal costs it will have on me. But when it comes to your family, cost is of, of very little value when you have to make tough decisions. With a career, with a team, with a community, the fracturing of a relationship can occur sometimes really without any significant damage. You can move past those things more easily, but the fracturing of a family will cause a brokenness and that brokenness goes so deep that it's not only that relationship that becomes broken, but significance is broken and shattered. Identity is broken and shattered. Security that a family once brought is broken and shattered. And in an attempt to pick up the shattered pieces of life, a person will, by necessity, create a yearning for something else to replace that safety, that security, and that significance that that family relationship at one time held together. And so maybe a person starts looking to a career, possessions, status, power, maybe it's one of those things. As a result, people will look to whatever that thing is for their deepest identity when they lose a family relationship that had secured that identity. The second that career is gone, all of a sudden you didn't just lose a job, 
your whole identity is shattered. And you can't put the pieces of your life back together. The second your estate is lost, you sold your home. You had to do it. It's not just that you lost your house, it's that your whole identity is now shattered. You don't know how to pick up the pieces. Biblically, the, the term for these things are, are idols. And a good definition of an idol is anything that you give yourself away for completely other than God. The key, the key question concerning your identity, and, and it's a, a question that we will ask throughout the study of Colossians, is the same key question of worship. To whom or to what are you giving yourself away for or toward? Genuine worship is giving yourself completely to the living God who created you and who redeemed you. But when we fall out of that genuine worship and we start worshiping an idol, we give ourselves away to something else other than God. The reason that we often struggle with our identity and turn to idols is because we have been socially conditioned to do so. And let me just give you one example, all right? Beware of Germans with big beards, because they will ruin your identity in Christ. This guy's name is Ludwig Feuerbach. He was a German anthropologist, lived at the beginning of the 19th century, and he studied at Heidelberg and then Berlin. He was a, a student of Hegel. If you follow any of the old philosophers, Hegel was a, a kind of a, a tutor. He was a student of Immanuel Kant. And Kant was the first philosopher that really made a huge uh, disparagement and distinguishing element between that which is sacred and that which is secular. It just changed the landscape of modern thought and philosophy as we know it. But Feuerbach was an interesting guy because his underlying aim, just as much as society today and culture will tell you, Feuerbach was a guy who would, who would fit in really well in our postmodern culture. His underlying aim was to get, convince people that belief in the everlasting divine was the belief in a non-existent being. God didn't exist. And so he made it his aim to turn people away from faith in God and put their faith in human ability instead. And this is a resounding theme through the modern era, scientific revolution, all of those things that we experience still even as a result in the postmodern culture. Ludwig believed rightly that human beings were prone to create their own gods or an image uh, as a projection of their ideals. And he thought that all gods were simply the objectifications of our human desires, of our passions, the things that we longed for. So he would say something like, you hope for peace, so you create a God who can bring you peace. You want love in your life, you've created your own God who is all of a sudden now he's this God of love. And as a result, Feuerbach believed that Christians had misplaced trust in a non-existent deity that they should have had in themselves instead. And he came up with a recommendation for all people. His recommendation was the psychogenetic method. And he wanted every single person to think about themselves and their heart and what was in there and question those things. All right, so if, if I look to God for peace, Feuerbach would say, why are you looking to God for peace? You have conflict in a relationship, go solve the conflict, and then you will personally experience peace. Ludwig would say, hey, you're looking to God for hope, why are you looking to God for hope? 
Go find a job. Go make some money. Go enjoy life and find fulfillment in the things of this world and stop putting your ultimate hope in God and your security in God. Feuerbach wrote of performing a, uh, a pneumatic hydrotherapy. And he said, what people need to do is put aside the magical waters of baptism and regeneration as Christians, and they need to take up real water instead and just wash themselves and take a bath. Karl Barth would write of Feuerbach, this is a really good assessment of his theology. He said his principal aim was to change the friends of God into the friends of men, believers into thinkers, worshipers into workers, and candidates of the other world into students of this world. Have you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? That came from Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach said of man that man is what he eats, nothing more and nothing less. He was a a huge influence on psychology, on philosophy in the modern West. And today, he would even say, again, people say, there is no purpose for mankind. There is no significance for man to be found outside of this world, this temporary life. Think about what you can do now, and then your life is going to be over, and that's it. If you asked Feuerbach about personal identity, here's what he would say. He would speak nothing of God, divine peace, eternal hope, or the kingdom of God. Instead, he would say, go make your own destiny, dream big, enjoy life, don't stop until you achieve your deepest and best dreams. And he had a hyper-optimism on the ability of man to solve all kinds of problems to bring peace and comfort. And at the end of the day, Feuerbach sounded a lot like Frank Sinatra. (laughs) So we will all do it our way. I did it my way. Paul couldn't have been more different in his teaching in Colossians than what Feuerbach had to say. Paul gives us two items to consider, and I want to look at these as an outline this morning. Number one, in thinking about our identity in Christ, he gives us a motivation that is stronger than our circumstances. And number two, an identification that is deeper than ourselves. You're going to see two things in Colossians 1 this morning. A motivation for life that is stronger than our circumstances. And an identification in Christ that is deeper than ourselves. Number one in your outline this morning, a motivation stronger than our circumstances. Look down at uh, Colossians 1. I'm going to skip around a little bit. We'll start in verse 24 and 25. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That's a really interesting phrase. I want you to hold on to that. We'll come back to it and talk about it. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Skip down to verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And then chapter 2, verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Now, unlike many of his letters, Paul had not personally visited the church in Colossae and not the church in Laodicea either. In chapter 2, verse 1, 
He mentions the believers in two cities, Laodicea and also the believers right there that are in Colossae, who had not seen him face to face. Nevertheless, these believers were somewhat familiar with Paul's circumstances. They knew that he was imprisoned when he wrote this letter. And so Paul was using this personal experience of suffering, trials, um, being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel as a catalyst for the believers in Colossae and Laodicea. And it was to encourage them to stand strong against the false teachers that were infiltrating the strong theology and the true gospel message that Paul was bringing. I want you to look at how many different words and times the Apostle Paul mentions a word like suffering, affliction, or toil. Look down at verse 24 again. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He talks about Christ's afflictions in verse 24. Skip down to verse 29. For this, I toil. Paul was struggling with all of his energy, speaking of the energy of God. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. The last two references to struggle are the Greek word agonizomai. All right, now everybody needs to say that really loud and proud and strong. It's one of the greatest, best Greek words that you will ever study and know from Scripture. Agonizomai, all right? It just rolls right off the tongue. Agonizomai means to struggle or contend, and it was used most often as an athletic metaphor in Paul's writings of two wrestlers that were constantly contending against one another, fighting and struggling to get the upper, upper hand in an athletic competition. What Paul was saying is that he was filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And that phrase there doesn't suggest that the redemptive suffering for Christ on our behalf for our salvation was insufficient for a right relationship with God the Father through Christ. That phrase means something different. It wasn't suggesting that Christ's suffering was not enough. Filling up here is it's a very technical term. There's actually two prepositions combined with the main verb to fulfill or to fill. And so he was saying that suffering instead is inevitable when we live in a world of darkness in opposition to the kingdom of God. As we minister the gospel to a fallen world, it is inevitable that we, ministers of the gospel, and you, participation in the gospel, are going to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul is bringing that to light as he writes to the church in Colossae and to these believers. But here's what I want you to see more than anything. Look down at verse 29 again. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I knew a pastor once that uh, he was in ministry for a pretty long time, and his church was going through some just really difficult situations. And one day he was about to just totally give up and walk away from ministry altogether. And so in his office right then as he came in, he took out a piece of paper and a pen, and he wrote down a handwritten resignation letter to the elders. He folded it, he sealed it up in an envelope to the elders of this church, stuck it in his desk drawer, some kind of way, just prayed, made it through the day, convinced that he was going to pass this letter on to the elders the next time that he saw him. Each day he came into his office, he would think about that letter that was in his desk drawer. Each day he didn't give it to the letters. In fact, weeks went by, months went by, years went by. 
And for 10 years, this pastor had a handwritten resignation letter in his top drawer of his desk that he had never, ever given over to the elders. Why? Because he found his energy, his power, the sufficiency to do ministry was found not in himself, but in the energy that is found in God and God alone. God was sufficient for him to make it through each day, each situation, and when he was at the end of his rope, that's right when God picked up and carried the load for him. Motivation, stronger than our circumstances, is what we have because of the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done for us. But, number two, we also have an identification that is deeper than ourselves. Look down at verse 26. We skipped over verse 26 and 27 here. I'll go back up, um, start in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. As a minister of the gospel... My job description is found right here at the end of verse 25. And it's Paul's job description. It's every faithful pastor's job description from the beginning of pastors until the end of pastors. And that phrase is loaded. Paul's responsibility as an apostle was to make known fully the word of God to his listeners, to teach the word of God fully. And part of that responsibility meant explaining the mystery of God, the things that were hidden in the past that were now revealed to the Apostle Paul. And commentators agree that when Paul speaks about this mystery, he is relying heavily upon Daniel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. And if you remember Daniel chapter 2, you're familiar with that book. In Daniel chapter 2, there's a, there's a king of Babylon who goes by, by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream disturbing dream. He doesn't know what the dream means. He's completely bothered by the dream. In fact, this dream is, is so powerful and so seared in his memory as he wakes up. He asks all the wise men, all the satraps, every person who would, who would know anything about dreams to come into his council chamber to explain to him not only the dream, to tell him the dream, but also the interpretation of the dream. And people came and people went, but nobody could tell King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was or what it meant until Daniel finds out about this king having the dream. And Daniel goes in, and, and before the, the dream can even be revealed to him, he says to him, I will make known to you this dream, but it's not me that's making it known to you. It is the God of heaven and earth, the God of the Israelites who is making it known to you. And so Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar explains to him without even knowing what he dreamt, what his dream was, and then what it meant, the interpretation of the dream. And he said he had a dream of a, a huge statue. A statue had a head of gold and a breastplate of silver and a, and, a, and a belt of bronze and an iron shoes. It's a massive statue. And those statues, each part of it represented a Gentile kingdom. And it was going to be this, this stone, this rolling stone that would come and shatter that statue and leave all of those kingdoms in the dust. 
but yet the stone would remain. Speaking of, of Christ, the stone that was rejected by his own people. And so Paul, when he relates what this mystery is, he's probably talking about the mystery of the gospel, the plan of salvation that would go through the Gentile nations just as much as it was for the people of Israel. Mystery is one of Paul's most interesting theological words that he will use in all of his letters. Half of the 20 uses of Paul mentioning this word mystery occur in Ephesians and Colossians. And Paul uses this word mystery to denote God's plan of salvation that remained hidden in ages past but was now revealed, namely the inclusion of Gentiles into the salvation of sinners, into the plan of God. Paul clarifies that this mystery is Christ in you, that the Gentiles also receive Christ just as the Israelites, true Israelites, believers in the Messiah, Jesus, had Christ in them, and it was the hope of glory. And this is the only place right here in Colossians where Paul associates that mystery directly with Christ. If you highlight, if you underline in your Bible, that little phrase there, verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is of massive theological significance and importance. Christ in you, when Paul labels this and talks about it in his letters, he probably has no single idea in mind, but rather a plurality, a wide variety of meaning comes through any time that you see this phrase. Christ in you at least means this. Number one, that Christ dwells within us, mysteriously, powerfully, apart from a body. His spiritual presence is in us as believers. John 14, verse 20 says this, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. For a believer, the life of Christ dwells within us, miraculously, and mysteriously, his presence is within us because of the power of the gospel. The second that we place our faith in Christ, we are indwelled with Christ. Secondly, that phrase in Christ, close to the indwelling of Christ, means that believers abide in Christ. The famous passage in John 15, verse 4, talks about the vine and the branches. God is the Father, is the vine and the branches we abide in God through Christ. John 15, 4 says this, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in Christ means that we are vitally connected with Christ, his resources, his power, his significance. It's a word of connection that comes along with being in Christ. Thirdly, in Christ depicts a personal union and an intimacy with the Father through Christ. At the individual level, believers share a deep, meaningful, personal connection to the living God because we are in Christ. At the corporate level, entire churches in the New Testament are described as being plurality in Christ. At a community level, a collective level, groups of believers, when they come together, true believers are coming together in Christ. Guthrie would say in his New Testament commentary, what is true of the individual is also true of the community. What's true of the individual when they trust Christ is that they are in Christ. It's also true of the community as well. They are also in Christ. Being in Christ takes us back over and over and over again to the concept of family. 
We are in the family of God through Christ because of what he has done for us. We are sons and daughters of the Father through Christ. And then Paul says this. He says, our identity being in Christ is the hope of glory. Many of you know the, uh, you know the story, is a story of Achilles, the Greek god, the immortal man. Achilles was, a, he was an interesting figure in Greek mythology. Uh, most of the pictures you see of Achilles are, are his mother holding him by his heel, dipping him into the river Styx because that is where he was bathed with immortality. Achilles' story goes something like this. His mother made a prophecy. He told Achilles, you will have a choice to make later on in life. Your choice will be for long life or it will be for short life. If you want to live a long life, you will have no glory, you will not be known, you will not be remembered by men. But if you want to live a short life, you will obtain glory. You will be remembered by what you've done, although your life will be, again, very short. Achilles was a, was a person who fought for the Greeks who didn't care about the Greeks. He didn't care about King Agamemnon. He would have let many Greek warriors die in battle if it wasn't for that prophecy from his mom because more than he wanted long life, he wanted significance. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to do something that ultimately mattered. He wanted to be able to look back at his life and say that he obtained glory, that what he did was weighty. It was significant in life, and he lost his life because of this, because of it. All of us, deep down, this is Achilles' story is the story of the human race. All of us, deep down, desperately want meaning. All of us, deep down, are, you know, the... One of the sinful tendencies of life is, is that we, would, we are fearful that we will be um, forgotten in the margins of history. One of our, our deepest fears and our deepest struggles with life is that we would be marginal, that we wouldn't matter. You guys, you guys know any slogans out there that people matter? You know, how, you know why that was such a big slogan? because they wanted significance. They want, all of us desperately want to matter. All of us want to do something that is, that's weighty, that's significant in life. All of us want to do something to obtain glory. And listen, what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is he's not only giving us a definition of what it means to be in Christ, to have the hope of glory, he's also given us a definition of sin. Because apart from Christ, just like Adam, just like Achilles, we strongly desire our own glory. We want to be significant. We want to matter on our own terms. Sin is essentially seeking glory in something other than Christ. And what does Romans tell us? All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. We want our own glory. We don't want glory and significance in God's eyes. We want glory and significance in our eyes. Colossians says that Christ, in Christ, is the hope of glory. And what that means is the most meaningful, the most significant, the most weighty thing that we could ever desire or have in life is found in Christ. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in what we do. 
It's not found in our pursuits or our passions, the most meaningful thing, the most weighty and significant thing that matters before God the Father is not us, it's Christ. It's what he's done through us through the truth of the gospel. In essence, Paul is saying this, stop looking for meaning, significance, and glory in all these avenues, roads, and idols that ultimately lead you to self and start turning to an eternal significant glory that will lead you to life and life eternal with the Father through Christ that will ultimately fulfill you in Christ. If we can come up and understand exactly what it means to be in Christ and have the glory of God through Christ, all of a sudden, all the other things in life pale in comparison to that. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter if you lost that job. You are still in Christ. It doesn't matter if you had to sell your home. You are in Christ. You have the hope of glory in Christ. All of a sudden, you have an identity that can overcome weaknesses, sickness, frailties, imperfections, all the stuff, the trials of life that turn people upside down. All of a sudden, it's right side up every single time because your identity is in Christ. And so I want to just close with three aspects, three results of what happens from a life with Christ through faith in the truth of the gospel. Number one, in Christ means that you have been crucified and you have died with Christ. If you are in Christ based on your faith in Jesus for salvation, you personally have been crucified. Your sin is crucified and it has died in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. For the believer who is in Christ, the old self, our sin nature, our, the penalty for our sin has been crucified past tense on the cross of Calvary. We have died to our sins, past tense. Therefore, sin no longer has to have power over our present earthly lives. The power of the gospel means that sin no longer rules over us. We no longer have to submit to the power of sin, the enslavement of sin. We have experienced a liberation from because we are in Christ. We have been crucified and we have died with Christ. In Christ, number two, means that we have been made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So the same life that was found in Christ that brought him up from the grave as he rose three days later is the very same life that is in you through the power of being in Christ. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life and life eternal. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you have life eternal through the power of Christ today, right now, and forever in the future. Number three, to be in Christ means we are glorified with Christ. I want you to look down at Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Let's get back up to Colossians 3, verse 3. You have died, past tense, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 
Being in Christ means that we will share in the glory of God in the future to come. What he has secured for himself through the resurrection of Calvary has also been secured for true believers who would unite to him in faith. And we share a glory with Christ because of the truth of the gospel and what he's done for us on Calvary. So many little issues that we struggle with in life can all be overcome if we would simply recognize and appropriate our identity in Christ through the truth of the gospel. Who are you is not the result of your past, of your circumstances, of the things you've done in the past or previous sins that you've committed. You are in Christ today, which means those things have been forgiven and they are gone and they have been crucified and you are dead to that sin in the past. Today, right now, if you choose to believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. That means that you are accepted by God the Father through Christ. That means that you are forgiven by Christ. That means that you have life today and you have life eternal in Christ. That means that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter your suffering, no matter the trial that's in front of you, even if it takes your life, you still have glory with Christ to follow. No matter the difficulty that you're facing, no matter the pain that you're experiencing with relationships, with people, with health, with whatever circumstance you are going through, you are in Christ. Your identity is stronger and deeper than any of those things because the Apostle Paul says that you are in Christ and you have the hope of glory. The one thing that really matters, the one thing of eternal significance, I'm going to stop on my soapbox in just a second. The one important matter, the one thing that is weightier than any other thing in life is the glory of God. And in Christ, you give up your glory, your vain glory, and you take on a glory that is found in the person of Jesus. And it is granted to you as a free gift. Not because of what you did. Not because of how you even live your life, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. All of these things take place in the past, the second you place your faith in Jesus. Our responsibility is to understand what took place the second that that occurred. To understand your identity in Christ. You are redeemed. You have been redeemed. You are redeemed. You have been given life in the past. You do have life now in the present. All because of your identity in Christ. We're going to continue to talk about this theme as we go through, through this book. We're going to continue to talk about the truth of the gospel. And really my prayer, not only for TBC, but uh, for my family, for, for my kids, for anybody listening online that's not a part of this church, is that on a day-to-day -day basis, all of us would understand deeper and another level what it means to be in Christ, that our identity would be firmly rooted in Jesus. If we put that piece in first, all the other little things will find their place as lesser importance because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, again, I just uh, I thank you so much for the truth of the gospel. I thank you that in Christ we have the hope of glory. Lord, and I pray that, um, and I know it's, it's true for me in my life at times, I know it's true for several people here today, the things that we look to for our eternal significance, for value, for our identity, if any of those things are not you, are not Jesus, help us to identify them for what they are, to confess them back to you, to repent of those things, and turn back and trust you and, and you alone for our deepest and most meaningful significance in life. Lord, I pray for a strongly grounded identity in Christ for every single listener today. I pray it for myself, that when I face the difficulties of life, when something takes me by surprise and otherwise would turn my world upside down, that I would think and contemplate my identity in you, in Christ. No matter the suffering we go through, no matter the trials that we experience, that we will turn again and again to the person of Christ. Help us to realize the deep truths of the gospel, what took place the second that we believed in you, and help that to make such a huge difference in our walk with you as as we live a life that's pleasing to the Father through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.